Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Taylor Petrie, the author of Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism, published by the University of North Carolina Press. In Tabernacles of Clay, Professor Petrie documents and theorizes about Latter-day Saints' teachings on gender, sexual difference, and marriage. He specifically notes how post-World War II Mormonism has been conflicted between ontologies of gender essentialism and gender fluidity, illustrating a broader tension in the history of modern sexuality itself. Thank you so much for being with us, Taylor. Thank you, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. To get things started, could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of religious studies. I have been uh, teaching at Kalamazoo College for about a decade or so, and I was trained at Harvard Divinity School originally in New Testament and early Christianity, where I worked on uh, gender in that particular time period. But as a practicing Latter-day Saint, I was always interested in how the theories that I was looking at about gender and sexuality might apply to my own tradition. And so when I got the opportunity to explore that in more detail after tenure, I took it and ran with it, and this is the product of all of that. It seems like everyone gets to do their 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 big project that they wanted to do after they get tenure, doesn't it? Uh, or, or I had. I, it's weird because I felt called. Not called is too strong of a word, but you know, as I kept waiting for somebody else to write this book. Uh, I expected somebody else to write this book, and nobody was. And the opportunity was there, and I I took it. So that's that's the story. I think that's the important thing for a lot of people to recognize is that this really is a pathbreaking book that was really needed. And what you do initially is you focus on Mormon sexuality and gender in the post-World War II era, and you argue that Mormons advocated for a particular kind of gender and sexual malleability and fluidity in this post-war era. And this is crucial to your study. So how would you describe gender and sexual malleability and fluidity? Well, in a way, I'm contrasting it with what I take to be, and and I think I'm accurate in saying this, the dominant narrative that Latter-day Saints have told about themselves, that they have believed that gender and sexuality are fixed, stable ontologies, male and female are created in the sort of, you know, a rigid binary. And I, as I started looking at the materials, was pretty shocked to discover that that didn't hold up for not just the far distant past of, of Mormon history, but the relative relatively recent past, that there were a lot of sort of competing ideas about gender and sexuality during that time period. So when I'm talking about gender fluidity and malleability, and these are ter- terms that are somewhat interchangeable in the in the text here, though there are some distinctions that I try to make, I'm talking about uh, a belief that um, masculinity and femininity, that maleness and females, femaleness themselves had to be performed, practiced, uh, enforced, uh, or else they could sort of disappear. And there was a concern that society, uh, if not the church, uh, needed to sort of take on this project of enforcing the differences between male and female. Otherwise, they would just sort of wash away. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I think this is really important for a large scale shift that you you know in the book, which is from a Mormon patriarchal to a Mormon heterosexual order. Uh, what were some of the events that brought about changing understandings of gender and sexuality within Mormonism in the second half of the 20th century? Well, the overall arc there of the transition from patriarchal to uh, to egalitarian or or a soft egalitarian view of marriage is one that I think that we see in other uh, traditions as well. So it's not necessarily unique in the in the Mormon context, but I try to pin it on a couple of different uh, events. Of course, there are always individual personalities and, and figures that are sort of pivotal in all of this, and you could tell it from their sort of biographical perspective. But I try to set it in a broader American history context, especially around the conversations that are happening around uh, gender, uh, the, the challenge that uh, 1960s and 1970s feminism bring to uh, patriarchal views of marriage and patriarchal views of society and see that the church is kind of trying to operate and navigate its way uh, through all of that. At first, they take a really strong position that uh, patriarchal marriage is the only thing, and they're very strong opponents of, uh, of feminist uh, uh, critiques and feminist revisions to marriage practices. That which sort of crystallizes in the political product of uh, opposing the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s and early 1980s. But uh, beyond that, I also try to argue that it's actually in that sort of direct conflict with feminism that Latter-day Saints begin to kind of articulate the beginnings or re-articulate because it is a sort of harkening back to an earlier period of Mormonism as well, but to re-articulate a theory that uh, that it's actually just fine for uh, for couples to be equal in their marriages. And in order to sort of facilitate that shift, they have to abandon patriarchy as a sort of dominant ideology of marriage and replace it instead with heterosexuality. And what that allows uh, to happen is a kind of displacing then of all of the big threats to society that uh, egalitarian marriage was supposed to bring, displacing those specifically onto gays and lesbians uh, and the sort of same-sex relationships that they, uh, that they were practicing. You mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment, and like many people, I, I know I've been watching uh, Mrs. America on, on Hulu, and, and they have mentioned uh, Mormon women's uh, um, activism quite a bit in some of the more recent episodes. So uh, it's been interesting to see how they incorporated Mormon women and the Mormon church to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment. I've been obsessed with that show, and I'm I'm so I'm so glad that you brought it up too. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating history, and I do try to talk a little bit about it uh, uh, in, in the book, specifically how Schlafly directly recruits uh, uh, Mormon women leaders initially, and then the Mormon male leaders sort of follow on after that uh, in this political battle, and and transitions away from a sort of preaching uh, approach to talking about gender roles, to saying this needs to be a political project. And uh, and that's a kind of evolution of the way that the church talks about gender. One of the interesting ways that you approach this is you start before the Equal Rights Amendment, before kind of the advent of second wave feminism, and you highlight the supposed threat of interracial marriage to Mormon understandings of sexual boundaries. And I was curious, why did the Mormon leadership view these porous boundaries between racial groups as particularly threatening? And how does this relate to other subjects in your book? 
Yeah. So I, I try to show that, that there are a number of different transitions that Mormons make over the course of the last 60 or 70 years uh, on gender roles, on marriage, on sexuality. And uh, as you mentioned, interracial marriage is one of the things that church leaders are really concerned about in the 1950s and 1960s. And they are, there are a number of sermons about it. And there are sort of broader cultural reasons. Of course, we know that the civil rights era in the 1950s and 60s is going on. Interracial marriage is being legalized in many states. Those are things that are kind of freaking out a number of different conservatives, especially Southern uh, evangelicals. Um, but uh, Mormons are are kind of interested in this issue because of their own unique reasons uh, for thinking about uh, racial segregation. In the practices that happened uh, in the church during that period black men were not allowed to be ordained to the priesthood and therefore any descendants of uh, an interracial marriage, at least between uh, a black member and a non-black member of the church, would not be eligible to be ordained to the priesthood. And so there was a, a sort of broader concern that the church had that if this started to be a regular practice, that huge numbers of either church members or Americans in general would be ineligible to be uh, leaders in the church. And so they sort of see their potential converts, their potential leadership uh, being diluted by uh, racial um, integration. That's fascinating. Um, I, I think that's one of the, the most interesting things as somebody who's a religious historian, but not a his historian of, of Mormonism myself, is thinking about that relationship of of priesthood and and, and lineage that um, Mormon patriarchs might have, and, and how that intersects with race. Um, and and it's not until what 1978 that there's a revelation about um, about uh, African American or Black priesthood, right? Yeah. So so 1978 marks the beginnings of a change. It's when the restrictions on priesthood for, for black men are removed. But interracial marriage is still for another decade or so uh, sort of discouraged, at least. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to show, I think, in, 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 the, um, in that piece there, in that part of the, the book, is the ways in which um, race was sexualized and uh, sex was racialized, right? There were certain kinds of relationships that were legit, certain kinds of sexual relationships that were either illegitimate or legitimate, not on the basis of the 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 sex or the gender of the person that one was uh, uh, engaged in that relationship with, but rather the race of that person. And so thinking about uh, the history of sexuality as highly racialized in the church and in American culture in general, I think helps to kind of focus at least one of the major shifts that's going on, again, in the church, but also in the broader American culture. I think one of the most fascinating things that you do throughout the book is you show an intriguing relationship uh, between Latter-day Saints and therapeutic culture in the years right after the Second World War. And specifically, I think you're able to draw on, uh, show how they draw on psychoanalytic theories about, quote unquote, the homosexual, while maintaining some of their own core beliefs. So how did this relationship between Mormonism, psychoanalysis, and larger cultural notions of therapy play out in the 1950s and 1960s? So much of this was one of my favorite parts of, of doing the research on the book, and I learned so much about this. And so I'm glad that you asked about this part specifically. So much of what's happening in the 20th century is the way in which 
all of our culture has sort of been psychologized, right? And we we talk with the sort of loose phrase is everyone's a Freudian now, right? We sort of take for granted so many sort of psychological principles and not just out of the Freudian legacy, but a whole set of popular psycho- psychological principles about positive thinking, right? Uh, this, the, the, the Oprah, The Secret, whatever, whatever that book was, uh, you know, that was uh, popular a decade or two decades ago or so. Um, and so these kinds of mind-focused, uh, 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 therapeutic uh, approaches, as you talk about. I just want to define that for people who don't know what I'm talking about. Things that say that um, you know it, it, you can you can be happy if you do these kinds of things, right? Or uh, uh, here's how you cure these particular uh, problems that you might be having uh, in, in your life by by focusing your mind, by engaging in a certain set of practices, and so on. And so that just saturates American culture. And especially after World War II, there's a huge boon in psychology. And like everybody knows all the big psychological theories and psychologists were the biggest figures in universities and behavioralism and and all, you know, everybody's talking about this. Right. And so it can't help but sort of seep into the religious uh, uh, worldviews and groundwater that so many people are sort of just just swimming in. And um, where this kind of really comes together where I start, sort of try to bring it in in the book is the way that church leaders start to think about homosexuality. And again, they're drawing on broader cultural uh, uh, phenomena that are happening also around uh, therapy after World War II, where you've got things like the Kinsey Report, right? Uh, you've got uh, all these kinds of popular uh, discussions about whether or not homosexuality can be cured. And Mormons kind of glom on to this as a sort of scientific or pseudoscientific explanation or defense of their beliefs. And um, it it ends up becoming really a whole branch of the church's uh, uh, efforts is um, therapeutic ministry. They hire a bunch of professional psychologists to treat not, of course, only homosexuality, but to treat depression, to treat, uh, you know, trauma uh, people who've, who've been who've experienced trauma. And these th- sort of uh, psychologists work in tandem with church leaders all throughout the since the 1970s up until today uh, to sort of counsel and help members of the church who who are experiencing problems. And homosexuality becomes one of the major efforts. Curing homosexuality becomes one of the major efforts that the church undertakes from the 1970s really up until the past decade or so. And I think that's also really fascinating because we like to think about religious thought and belief as distinct from maybe the quote unquote science of of psychology and, and whatnot, and and it shows how uh, these porous boundaries really existed, and that there's this relationship between religious thought and belief, and then the supposed science of psychology. Absolutely, and I know that this is an area that you work on too. So, if we have more time, I'd love to just pick your brain on it. Uh, but, but uh, that's absolutely right. The ways in which religious people start to articulate their own beliefs in the terms of psychology is hugely important. So, just as one example, one of the big characters during this time period uh, is a guy named Spencer W. Kimball. He eventually becomes the president of the church, but he was a leading apostle during this time period. And he's a little bit skeptical about professional psychologists for at least part of this period. He eventually comes to embrace them. But um, he still, even when he's skeptical of them, he sort of sees religion as a psychological project. And he says, if you sin, you're just going to be, you know, dwelling in guilt and doubt about yourself, you know. And so 
if you want to be uh, cured, if you want to be happy, if you want to sort of live this this more wonderful life, then you can't sin, right? And so sin is framed as like a psychological burden that one that one carries, and uh, and the way to free yourself from that is to live a righteous life. So yeah, they're, they're, they 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 they're thinking about sin as a psychological issue, right? They can't sort of escape um, the the popular terminology of the day to redefine what it means to be a religious person during this time period. One of the other great things that that you show is how there's not only this religious and this psychological, but this political uh, aspect to Mormons wrestling with issues of gender and sexuality. So how they seemed, uh, as a group, Mormons, very skeptical to enter into these national debates initially. But over the course of the 70s with things like the ERA, they, they, they dipped their toe and then kind of fully emerged themselves. So how did this process work out for them? Well, in a way, the church's political efforts starting in the 1970s with opposing the ERA and then, of course, in the 1990s and 2000s with opposing um, same-sex marriage measures in various uh, individual states, Hawaii, Alaska, of course, California, and and, uh, twice in California, Prop 22 in the year 2000 and Prop uh, 8 in 2008, they're successes. And the the church wins. The church had a a 100% winning track record during this time period. And uh, they saw themselves, they were collaborating, of course, with other religious actors, mostly Catholics, um, uh, though uh, evangelicals were a big part of the the coalition. But the sort of planning committees were often built up of of Catholics and Mormons. Um, But these were, yeah, these were hugely successful. And so they kept going after them in part because they felt, look, not only are we sort of undertaking this righteous cause, we're, we're protecting society, but the majority of people actually agree with us, right? So they, they were able to win in these various battles, and that sort of vindicated their their political efforts as as legitimate. And it seems as though they're able to use the mantle of what we might call traditional family values to do what you're, you're talking about is, is to find other political allies crossing doctrinal and theological boundaries in some way. Yeah, and I, I rely on um, the the really excellent book by Seth Dowland, and there's others who have done this kind of stuff too, called Family Values, um, that tells this story in a little bit more more depth. But this sort of slogan becomes a kind of catch-all for a number of conservatives during that time period. And again, Mormons articulate themselves precisely in the rhetoric of what we now call the religious right, um, and the the Family Values slogan is a kind of uh, a uniting thing that says, look, we're going to put, put aside our theological differences and we're going to collaborate politically to defeat a common enemy, feminists, homosexuals, you know, and, and so on. And so, uh, so yeah, so this, this family values is a really important kind of uh, uh, a term that brings everybody together. I think what might be a little bit different, though, with, uh, say, uh, evangelicals, uh, for instance, is obviously there's a church hierarchy, um, and, and there's revelations, and there's a center of power, right? Whereas uh, maybe evangelicalism is a little more spread thin. Uh, I, I find that fascinating to think about uh, the power structure within uh, the LDS church uh, for, for redirecting political efforts, too. 
I think that's a really keen observation. And of course, it applies in in the Catholic context as well, where you have centralized hierarchies, uh, a lot of financial resources and uh, sort of organizational resources that come with that centralized hierarchy, as opposed to uh, a sort of more charismatically driven, of course, very wealthy in some cases, uh, but but charismatically driven communities uh, that that might not necessarily cooperate well or be able to have sort of the, the infrastructure that uh, that the other churches have of a kind of global architecture uh, built in to sort of mobilize people. And so that's one of the the advantages that the church has in its advantages in its um, in its understanding in these political battles is that they can kind of dip in at, in any state in the in the in the country with a whole network of grassroots organizers that they can just kind of call on to do this work. And that's a major way that they that they defeat the Equal Rights Amendment and, of course, uh, 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 enact various anti-same-sex marriage ballot measures around the country. I think this uh, top-down um, potential power structure, potentially top-down, is also fascinating when you're thinking about a topic that you spend a lot of time on in your book, which is the family, a proclamation to the world. Uh and so I, I was wondering if we could hear a little bit more about what this proclamation was, who made it, why they made it, and how did it represent a transition from the patriarchal to the heterosexual order that's so central for your book's argument? So the proclamation is uh, delivered as it called the, the sort of short name is just the proclamation. It takes that <laughs> kind of vaunted title there, right? Uh, the proclamation is um, given in 1995, and um, it. I, I I think, and I, I think I'm right in this, sort of marks this in in some ways a tr- the end of a certain kind of patriarchal marriage and the beginnings of a transition to a more egalitarian or soft egalitarian form form of marriages, um, and and it does so by kind of holding on to two competing ideas simultaneously. It's a 600-word document. It sits on one page. It's hugely valuable for thinking about how modern Mormons uh, uh, think about um, sexual ethics, for thinking about politics, for thinking about uh, uh, that sort of broader family values uh, platform that we talked about. But it lays out this idea that um, husbands and wives should be equal, but at the same time, that fathers preside in the family. So it kind of embodies that that tension between those two competing ideas. What it doesn't do then anymore is it, it doesn't sort of unqualifiedly embrace the patriarchal model that was before. It has a, it has a much softer version of that. And it certainly doesn't hold on to the sort of racialized views of the families. Those, those are totally done at that point by, by the time we get to the 1990s, at least officially, right? Unofficially, local congregations, you'll still find a lot of racism or residual effects of all of that, right? But at the top church level, that history uh, is more or less over. And then, um, and then, uh, so, so what it adopts then, as I was mentioning earlier, is that heterosexual model as the, the ideal for the family, which can hold on to either the egalitarian or the patriarchal, right? So the heterosexual framing of the family uh, allows for a, a slightly more capacious understanding of the options available for for um, uh, family dynamics, patriarchal or egalitarian, and shifts all of the burden on then to same-sex couples as the thing that's the big problem, right? Um, heterosexuality is capacious, is open, it can, can accommodate all of these new options, but homosexuality, same-sex relationships are, are, are not. 
I have a follow-up question about this because I, I'm, I'm actually very curious about this. And I've been trying to find an answer to some of these things myself. But whenever I've read the, the proclamation, I, I also think of it as a we are one of you conservative Christians in America document. Is there any evidence that this is how it's also being viewed as this is a, another way in which to show uh, Mormons as a maybe mainstream conservative Christian population within the United States or within the world? I think so. And this is, I think, one of the things that I'm, I'm the first to argue in, in this book is that the, the proclamation that the church puts out in 1995 looks a heck of a lot like a lot of other documents that other conservative members of the religious right are also developing. So the Eagle Forum and the and the uh, and the there's a document called the Danvers Statement by the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and uh, the focus on the family and the Pat Robertson's. They're all coming out with these sort of quasi political doctrinal arguments that say, here's what we think the family is. And they're all, of course, putting to, to vary. They have slight differences between them, but homosexuality and feminism are still the sort of primary enemies uh, that these documents are, are trying to, to, to warn off against. And so the, the church's proclamation, which is directed to the world, it's not an internal document. It's explicitly directed to the world. Right. Um, does contain a few unique Mormonisms, I guess you could say, things like heavenly parents, right? Some some, some minor doctrinal differences that that the uh, Latter Day Saints might have with respect to some of their other um, uh, uh, compatriots in the religious right movement, uh, but. But it, it definitely shows that there are a set of shared values, again, around a kind of heterosexual family that um, that lays out the obligations that parents have towards each other, that they have towards their children, that children have towards their parents. You know, th these are the kind of stock things that all of these documents have. In. And in some cases, I don't know if there is necessarily direct quotations, but almost direct quotations between the proclamation on the family and some of these other documents that are coming out in this time period. Whether or not there's sort of direct coordination, you know, I, we'd have to really get into the behind the scenes archives to see how these documents were constructed. But the fact that there are so many documents like this during this exact same time period suggests, if not direct coordination with other members of the religious right, certainly a kind of shared collective set of uh, consciousness uh, in that time period that there needed to be in an a political articulation of this particular doctrine, of these particular ideas during the 1990s. And another thing that the, the all these disparate religious uh, affiliations seem to have in common is something that both of us are, are interested for research, which is conversion therapy. Right. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Latter-day Saint experiences with sexual orientation and gender identity change therapies from, say, uh, in, in the post-war period. Yeah. So we, we talked about Spencer W. Kimball a little bit earlier in the conversation, and he's a really important figure in telling this story. As I mentioned, he's initially skeptical of psychologists and psychotherapists, and, and he is sort of developing... I guess you could say kind of like um, lay led uh, change efforts, you know, that are kind of drawing on the broader psychological conversations that are happening between uh, uh, Bieber and others who are um, uh, sort of advocating for sexual orientation change in the 1970s, 1960s and 1970s. And uh, uh, he starts to hire on eventually real professional psychologists who take this on and uh, the church's 
one of the branches, one of the arms of the church's organization, that therapeutic uh, arm that we talked about, the LDS Social Services or LDS uh, Family Services, as it's sometimes called, it changes names over time, um, takes sexual orientation change therapy as one of its missions. Now, that's not the exclusive mission, and it's not the only organization that takes that on. There are a number of other independent uh, psychologists and independent organizations that pop up uh, from the 1970s on in the church to kind of deal with this. But that was the dominant way. The church really held on to this idea. It starts to fade away by the time you get to the 2010s. But for a long time period, for about 40 years, this was the dominant paradigm that the church leaders uh, held on to, that um, those who really tried hard, those who really wanted it, would be able to change their sexual orientation, would be able to uh, be cured. And the word cure was used, right? So, uh, yeah, so this is uh, really a, a defining part of how the church sees the world. Uh, and again, that unstable kind of sexuality, not only can somebody become gay through the right uh, or through the wrong kind of social influences, but somebody could also become straight through the right social influences. Right. And so uh, they, they see that boundary between homosexuality, homosexuality and heterosexuality as incredibly unstable. And the only way to kind of protect it is through social ecclesiastical pressures that sort of push people in the direction of heterosexuality. And it also seems as though uh, members of the LDS church are are very tuned into what could be called like the hot treatments of specific times, right? So you talk about aversive therapies, but then also the dominant therapeutic modality of reparative therapy uh, in the 80s and 90s especially. Yeah, they're doing they're doing everything, right? And they're again, they're following a lot of the trends that are happening. So so I don't want to say that Latter-day Saints are totally unique or totally barbaric, right? They're doing the same things that all other conservatives are doing and they're directly collaborating with other conservative organizations. You know, they'll have annual conferences and they'll bring out the heads of the ex-gay movements and all the other, uh, you know, evangelical and Catholic iterations of those and Jewish iterations of those. So there's, you know, a real tight collaboration on, on this specific issue. Um, and yes, they are, they start with aversion therapy, uh, that sort of fades away. And then they, they embrace other therapeutic models and they're experiment they're, you know, independent actors that are out there doing their own thing and sort of trying to, to make a name for other therapeutic approaches as well. And, um, uh, but they're doing things like basketball, right? They'll get all the gay men together on a Saturday morning in Salt Lake City and teach them how to play basketball and teach them how to play sports with this idea that if you can teach these sort of manly masculine activities, that manly masculine sexual desires will uh, be a result. Of course, these also became like hookup spots for gay men <laughs> to cruise <laughs> other with other gay men uh, on Saturday mornings, right? Um, and uh, uh, so they weren't always effective in that way. But that was the idea, right, is to teach manliness in other things. You know, teach somebody how to work on a car and suddenly, you know, their desires towards women are going to change as well. Uh, so, so they saw sexuality as kind of integrated into a broader uh, uh, issue around masculinity. And I say masculinity especially because that's 90% of the focus. There are, of course, women, there are gay women that the church is trying to treat, but they hardly get any attention relative to men. And whenever the church talks about it, it's almost always about men. So it's a really male-centered uh, discourse around homosexuality. One of the fascinating things also for me is I, I currently live in Utah. So I've gotten to see 
in the four four or five years I've been coming here a little bit more, this real shift and what I think is younger Mormons thinking on gender and sexuality and how that differs from that of older generations. And in your conclusion, you you hit on a lot of these um, these differences, these generational differences. How do you describe the current debates over gender and sexuality within the Latter-day Saints? I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so I'll, I'll go a little bit off of memory on this. But they're pretty stark differences between um, a baby boomers and millennials, for instance. Uh, Gen X are sort of halfway in between. We uh, That's the generation I'm from. We sort of always straddle those two, right? Um, but pretty stark differences of opinion on uh, basic questions like, should homosexuality be accepted in society? And huge numbers of young Latter-day Saints say yes, and huge numbers of old Latter-day Saints say no, right? So that generational difference on this question is really, really stark. And if you look at, for instance, even the reasons that um, Latter-day Saints who exit the movement, who leave the church, cite, LGBT issues are usually, I think, in the top three reasons why, or or the top three overall. And again, I'm going a little off of memory on some of these surveys, but it's pretty striking how much this issue has taken a center stage uh, of ways that younger Mormons are really standing apart from the, the church and the official church hierarchy that is run by older members. What are the long-term effects of that? It's hard to say. There are two potential options, right? One is that uh, the church sort of continues to hold on to uh, a sort of strict understanding about against homosexuality, uh, doesn't make for uh, the kinds of capacious allowance for same-sex relationships that many of the young members sort of uh, would like to see in the church. And the young members simply leave or maybe some are able to convince to be convinced and kind of stick around. Right. Uh, but but maybe the church just becomes a kind of small, has a smaller footprint and is a smaller uh, set of, uh, of people who, who are willing to be associated with it. The other option is that the church may change, uh, may take on a more capacious understanding of what kinds of relationships are allowed, what kinds of relationships are authorized, uh, the kind that, again, many of the younger generations would seem to be totally fine with happening in the church. And so we might see the church kind of move in that direction. Either way, a huge a huge conflict is coming and a huge change is coming in the church over this issue. And it has been uh, especially since 2008. I think Proposition 8 in 2008 was a really polarizing issue, not, of course, just in American culture, which is obvious, right, uh, but especially within the church. And, you know, it, it's a little bit of a mistake to see all Mormons that were on the side of this. Many were not, and many were not only had reservations at the time, but have become really resentful almost of the way that the church got involved in that issue, a little bit embarrassed by that history, by the the way the church got involved. And so I think that we're seeing presently, but certainly in the future, the the seeds of really further divisions that are going to drive some change one way or the other. Uh, And I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know if history always moves in one direction or not, but uh, but it's a really fascinating. Anybody who's kind of interested in seeing these pressures that are happening in churches, um, you know, that are dividing the Episcopal Church, that are dividing the Methodists, right? Uh, this issue is dividing Mormons right now quite a bit as well. And I, I, I think that we're going to see some really interesting changes in the future. 
I think it's also extraordinarily essential that if somebody wants to understand these debates that are happening right now that have clearly um, blown up the campus of BYU, for example, your book's absolutely essential for understanding that. Oh, thank you so much. I hope to I hope to have some kind of contribution. Of course, the book doesn't advocate for one thing or another, right? It's attempt to, uh, it's an attempt to be a historical analysis of how we got to the present moment. Um, uh, but I do hope that it informs uh, people who are thinking about these issues critically. Well, Taylor, it's been absolutely great getting to chat to you about Tabernacles of Clay, sexuality and gender in modern Mormonism, and to learn more about this important part of the recent past. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you. For everyone else, please head to the University of North Carolina Press website to purchase a copy of Taylor's Tabernacles of Clay. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history.